Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Psalm 21. Psalm 21 is where we are headed this morning as we continue our way through the book of Psalms this summer. And as you're turning there, so when I was a child, most TV show episodes were self-contained. You you know what I mean by that? Whether I was watching Saturday morning cartoons or some of the old classics like I Love Lucy or Dick Van Dyke, every episode on its own introduced a new conflict, you know, led through all the wild whatever happened in the episode, and by the end had resolution. Right? And, and this happened in every episode. Every episode sort of stood on its own and ended with kind of, you know, tied and wrapped in a nice bow. But nowadays, almost every TV show is open-ended, right? Episodes don't end with a resolution, but rather usually end with the introduction of a new conflict, you know, that kind of keeps you going, oh, what, what comes next, right? Uh, and, and then, you know, most episodes these days began with some kind of recap previously on such and such, right? I mean, that's how they all begin. It tells you what you need so you can keep on going. Now, every now and then, when I was a kid, a show might have done something like this. I remember one Saturday morning, I was watching Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, right? I mean, that was, that was my thing as a kid. And there was one episode where it was getting toward the end, but they had not beat the bad guy yet. And I was getting a little anxious. And then all of a sudden, it was kind of freeze frame and those words come up, to be continued, with an ellipsis. And I'm just sitting there, you know, my, my sort of eight-year-old self lost his mind. What's going to happen? Well, I have to wait to find out? On and on, I was on the edge of my seat. And we used to refer to episodes like this as cliffhangers right? Which apparently gets its name from a novel from the late 1800s that featured an entire chapter with a character hanging off the edge of a cliff. Uh, And and it was published only one chapter at a time. Uh, And so, you know, that chapter finished. You had to wait till the next chapter was going to be published to find out, right? It was a cliffhanger. Um, Well, most of the Psalms function kind of like one of those self-contained episodes. Uh, You know, each psalm kind of stands on its own. It's a song that uh, has its own message, its own themes, on and on. But occasionally, the book of Psalms will put two psalms next to each other that continue one another's story. And so if if you were here last week, you'll remember Psalm 20 uh, was this priestly blessing for the king before the king rode off into battle. And Psalm 20, in its own way, kind of ended with a cliffhanger. The last verse of the psalm, Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. And you can sort of imagine, you know, the king riding off into battle and then the freeze frame and those words, to be continued, right? What's going to happen to this king as, as he runs off into battle? Well, Psalm 21 is a song after the battle. Psalm 21 picks up as the king returns. It is a song that would have been sung as the king rides back in and is received by the priest and the people of God. And so let's read Psalm 21 together. 
The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in a blazing fire. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and his fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their posterity from mankind. Though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed. You will make them turn their backs when you aim at them with drawn bow. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. We will sing and praise your might. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and for these psalms that invite us into worship and prayer. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the, the fall equinox is exactly one month from today. Uh, that's when it will officially be the season of fall. But this cooler weather we've already started having has started me thinking about this coming season of the fall. Families are, are getting ready to shift back into school mode. Many of you are probably counting the days for the Seahawks, or maybe you're already watching the preseason games. Uh, of course, more than two months ahead of time, stores are already stocking Halloween candy, which means that Thanksgiving and Christmas are just right around the corner, right? I mean, so the, the year is basically over already. Um, but, you know, I, I love Christmas songs and, and all of this stuff, but every time we come toward the holiday season, there's a burning question uh, in my mind, and that is, where are the Thanksgiving songs? Where are the Thanksgiving songs? Right? I mean, Christmas is just oozing with music coming out of every pore. And even Halloween has kind of spooky music. You've got Twilight Zone and the Monster Mash, uh, whatever you might like. But, but what about Thanksgiving? Right? Where, where are the Thanksgiving songs? See, there really aren't many. There aren't many. And, and I think that this reveals something about our culture. Because our culture is not prone to foster gratitude. 
Our culture does not naturally foster a posture of gratitude. We don't often live in gratitude. I mean, sure, we, we know something about manners, and we'll say thank you when we ought to, but we don't often live out of gratitude, out of a place of thanksgiving. And I mean, just think about it. Our culture is one that really ultimately values prosperity. There's one cultural commentator who has described our culture as ultimately up and to the right, right? If you were to draw a graph of what our culture values, it would just be this constant trend ticking up and to the right. That's the, that's the American dream, right? That's, that's the goal of our culture. Health, wealth, fame, fortune, up and to the right. This is what we celebrate. This is what our culture celebrates and longs for. And not only does our culture celebrate increasing prosperity, we also have tended to celebrate our central role in gaining that prosperity. I mean, this is the, the quintessential narrative of the American dream. It's through our hard work and our efforts that we have earned our way into what we have. We've earned our way into prosperity. It's one of the fundamental narratives of our culture, and gratitude does not fit nicely within that narrative. In fact, gratitude interrupts it and, and upends this cultural story. You see, gratitude requires two things that our cultural narrative does not allow. First, gratitude requires that we stop long enough to look back on our life and give thanks. It requires us to pause for a moment. And second, it requires acknowledging that we are not the only ones contributing to our life, that, that there are actually others beyond us to give thanks to, to express gratitude to. See, gratitude requires that we stop and that we acknowledge help. And the pursuit of prosperity uh, requires the opposite. It requires us to keep going and to hang on to what we've earned. So it makes sense that our culture would be one that struggles with gratitude. Because it goes against the grain of our cultural values and narrative. And so as I read Psalm 21, this is one of the first things that jumped out at me. Because when the king rides back in from battle, it's clear the king has won, right? He's coming back. The battle went well. Here he is. And in our prosperity pursuit culture, with a success like that, we would put that victory down on a resume and then start making plans for the next battle, right? Oh man, we did great, now let's keep going. But Psalm 21 shows us a different way to live. It shows us a different thing to value. You see, as the king returns from battle, verse 1 says, the king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. See, in the wake of victory, this psalm pauses 
to give thanks and to acknowledge God. The king and the people rejoice and acknowledge that this victory is not theirs. This victory is God's. God is the one who fought and won. And so they worship him. You know, just a moment ago, we were singing, The joy of the Lord is my strength. Uh, The opening line of the psalm might be rephrased the other way around. The strength of the Lord is my joy. Right? In acknowledging God's strength, the people rejoice and they give thanks because God is victorious. And so this psalm begins to cultivate a posture of gratitude. And it continues. I mean, line after line, thanks is laid upon thanks as it is addressed to the Lord. As we keep looking, the psalm goes, you have granted him his heart's desire. You came to greet him with rich blessings. He asked you for life, and you gave it to him. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him unending blessings. Over and over and over again, God is acknowledged and thanks is given. Now, I want to pause here and and ask a question, because we often rush from one day to the next with whatever is, is, you know, next on our calendar, on our mind. I'm wondering, when is the last time that you stopped to give thanks to God? Just paused to say, thank you, Lord. I mean, sometimes even in our prayers, we can sort of have that up into the right mindset, right? Always looking ahead as we pray about what's coming next, asking for more, for for help, for whatever it may be. And it's good to pray for those things. But how often do we, in our prayers, pause and look back to give thanks? This is an essential component of prayer. And it cultivates gratitude in our lives. And it can be hard to do, to pause and reflect and say thank you. And some of you might remember the the old hymn, Count Your Blessings. You know, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Right? And there's a sense... Uh, in which the psalm is doing that, right? The psalm is sort of counting all of these different blessings. Uh, That's precisely what it says in verse 6. Surely you have granted him unending blessings. But there's more. See, counting blessings can be a good start. But gratitude runs far deeper than that. Look at the rest of verse 6. So surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. The joy of your presence. See, gratitude really is not ultimately about blessings. It's not about stuff 
that we have. Gratitude at its foundation is about the presence of God. The presence of God in our life. Pastor, teacher, and author Adele Calhoun describes it this way. She says, gratitude is a loving and thankful response toward God for his presence with us and within our world. Though blessings can move us into gratitude, they are not at the root of a thankful heart. Delight in God and his goodwill is the heartbeat of thankfulness. Delight in God and his goodwill is the heartbeat of thankfulness. I I love the way that she puts that. Because gratitude is a response to God, not to our stuff or to our circumstances. And what this means is that we can cultivate a posture of gratitude regardless of our circumstances regardless of how things are going. Just think of Jesus' response when he is facing down a crowd of 5,000 hungry people and all he has is a few loaves of bread and fish in his hands. How does he respond, right? It would have made total sense for Jesus to have, have moved into a place of lament. You know, oh, these people are hungry and there's so little food. But instead, what does he do in Mark chapter 6? It says, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And every one of them is fed. You see, Jesus gives thanks even in the midst of this crowd's hunger and the obvious lack of resources. Even on the eve of the cross, Jesus spoke with his disciples. He he mentioned one who would betray him, and he told them about his coming death with these words. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You see, even on the eve of the cross, even sitting right next to one who would betray him, Jesus gives thanks. Gratitude is not dependent upon our circumstances, but rather acknowledging the presence of God in our midst. Gratitude is possible regardless of what's going on because it's rooted in trusting God. And this is what the psalm goes on to say in verse 7. The king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. By trusting in the Lord and living in this posture of gratitude, we will not be shaken by circumstances, no matter what comes our way. 
And so we should regularly pause and look back and give thanks, not merely for blessings, but paying attention to the presence of God in our life. ancient uh, person uh, from the history of the church who is well known for this is someone named Ignatius of Loyola. He lived in the 16th century, and he made a regular practice of doing this every day. Every day, he would look back on the day and and review the day and all of the, the great moments that happened and the painful things that he had faced. And regardless, he would give thanks to God. He wrote this, I will ponder with great affection about how much God our Lord has done for me and how much he has given me of what he possesses. And finally, how much the same Lord desires to give himself to me. This is the heart of gratitude. Not just focused on blessings and circumstances, but God himself, who offers himself to us. This is what gratitude is all about. But there's more. There's even more. The psalm continues from there. Gratitude involves pausing to look back at what has gone before and give thanks. But gratitude also transforms how we look ahead to the future. See, the first half of the psalm shows us that giving thanks gives us gratitude for the past. But the second half of the psalm shows us that it also gives us hope for the future. We see this shift happen in verse 8. Up to this point, the whole psalm is either spoken in the past or the present tense. But here in verse verse 8, it shifts to the future. It goes on to say, your hand will lay hold of all your enemies. You will burn them up. You will make them turn their backs. We will sing and praise your might. Right? All of these proclamations about what is to come. Giving thanks to God for the past gives us hope for the future. And why is this, right? How, how is this? Well, it's the same reason that we can give thanks regardless of circumstances. I mean, just as true gratitude is rooted not in our possessions, but in the presence of God, so also our true hope is rooted not in our efforts, but in the presence, in the person of God. Our hope is rooted in God, and so we can be sure of what is to come. By acknowledging that past victories have come from the Lord, the psalmist is assured that future victories will also come from God. And we see this shift take place in the psalm, This movement from giving thanks for the past to proclaiming hope for the future. But this very same shift occurs as we come to the table of the Lord each week. I mean, we just read about Jesus at 
at the table with his disciples. It is the, the ultimate place of thanksgiving. I mean, many traditions have referred to the table as Eucharist, which is literally the Greek word for thanksgiving, for giving thanks. It's at the table where Jesus broke bread and gave thanks. It is the place of gratitude, of thanksgiving, and it is the table where each week we receive from Jesus and give thanks. But I want you to see, look at how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Until he comes. See, the, the table of the Lord is a place where we look back to the cross. And we look back to the resurrection and we give thanks to God for all that he has done. And this is not just blessing, right? We don't just give thanks for salvation someday. We give thanks for Jesus who came to dwell with us. This is not just blessing, it's the presence of God. The essence of gratitude. And it's the presence of God in the darkest of places. And this is what we remember. We look back on and give thanks. And from this, we also look ahead to the future, to that day when he will come again to finally defeat the last enemy, death itself, so that there will be life everlasting forever and ever, as it says in the psalm, verse 4. You see, this psalm is about the victory of God and the destruction of the enemies of God. And Paul tells us the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the day that we hope for, the day that we long for. See, as followers of Jesus, we read this psalm as one of gratitude and hope, just as it was in its original context. But for us, this gratitude and this hope runs even deeper. For us, it's not just the victory of a battle and defeating future enemies, but rather it is victory over the ultimate battle of sin and death itself. And it is the day of God's kingdom coming in its fullness. This is what this psalm proclaims to us. Verses 1 through 6, as we read them, are, are about a king's victory. And every week we gather to celebrate the victory of Jesus and the resurrection. The psalm proclaims that victory. And then verses 8 through 13 proclaim a future day of victory when there will be no more enemies 
And every week we proclaim this too with confident hope as we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so verses 1 through 6 look back to the victory of Jesus' resurrection. And verses 8 through 13 look forward to the day of his return. And in the meantime, we live in verse 7. Trust in the Lord. Through his unfailing love, we will not be shaken. May it be so.